Support for this episode of Judaism Unbound comes from the Ashman Family JCC in Palo Alto, California, whose vision is to be the architects of the Jewish future. The Ashman Family JCC empowers you to experience Jewish paths toward a life of joy, purpose, and meaning through innovative Jewish learning and wellness programs, community building, and initiatives to develop the next generation of Jewish leaders. Learn more at www.paloaltojcc.org. This is Judaism Unbound, episode 257, Jewish Liberation Fund. Welcome back, everyone. I'm Dan Liebenson. And I'm Lex Rothberg. And today we have the last interview in our series looking at Jewish philanthropy. It's another one of those series that I'm sure we're going to return to over and over again because obviously it's a very important topic. We've created an arc in this series looking at increasingly decentralized ways of organizing people to address new funding challenges in the Jewish community. Today's interview is a fitting conclusion because it's a new kind of Jewish fund that has been created recently. Our guests today are leaders from the Jewish Liberation Fund, which is a new community-funded Jewish foundation established to mobilize resources to sustain and grow the Jewish movement for justice and liberation. The Jewish Liberation Fund has already received over $5 million of pledges for the next decade, and they seek to transform Jewish social justice philanthropy and ensure robust and stable funding for the Jewish social justice movement. The Jewish Liberation Fund, as they say, is a people's fund, mobilizing resources to sustain and grow the progressive Jewish movement for justice and liberation. In 2020, the Jewish Liberation Fund awarded its first $125,000 in grants to five projects, all led by Black and or Indigenous Jews, Jews of color, Sephardic and or Mizrahi Jews, including grants to Black Jewish Liberation Collective, Min HaMetzar, Not Free to Desist, Rimonim Liturgy Project, and Tzedek Lab. Just to get a little bit more of the self-description of the Jewish Liberation Fund, here are a few quotes from their website. Within the American Jewish community, we have enough resources, vision, talent, and collective power to bring forth the more whole, just, liberatory world of which we dream. The challenge is to collectively allocate and distribute those resources in service of those dreams. Yet there are critical funding gaps in the Jewish philanthropic community, leading to insufficient support for deeply needed work. Many Jewish funders have either implicit or explicit policies and practices that serve to maintain structures of oppression, including racism, sexism, classism, ableism, and others, all of which harm our community. And we're going to talk about a number of those in our conversation, as well as certain policies that many Jewish funders have about the positions that organizations that they fund have to take on matters relating to Israel. As a result, they say, our movements are weaker, our organizations are less agile and responsive, our ability to build authentic, robust, strong relationships with our allies across and through lines of difference and disagreement is hampered, we are less able to maintain cross-issue alliances, and our community is losing out on the wisdom of leaders who believe deeply in Jewish values that compel them to pursue justice. Our guests today are Joanna Ware and Nadav David. Joanna Ware is the director of the Jewish Liberation Fund. She's an organizer, facilitator, and educator who has spent over a decade working with organizations inside and outside of the Jewish world to bring forth a more just, whole, and liberatory world. She has worked as a diversity, equity, and inclusion consultant, adaptive leadership teacher and practitioner, community organizer, and popular educator at the intersections of identity, power, leadership, and social justice. 
Previously, she worked for LGBTQ equality in the Jewish community as a core member of Keshet's program team. Nadav David is a member of the Jewish Liberation Fund Steering Committee, as well as the New England Regional Organizer at Resource Generation, a multiracial membership community of young people with wealth and or class privilege committed to the equitable distribution of wealth, land, and power. Previously, he worked as a financial coach assisting families living in subsidized housing programs to reach their financial goals. We're really thrilled to learn more about the Jewish Liberation Fund. So, Joanna Ware, Nadav David, welcome to Judaism Unbound. It's so great to have you. Thank you. It's wonderful to be here. Excited to be here. So, can we start with a little bit of the story of how the Jewish Liberation Fund got started? When did it start exactly? And what, what was the thinking and the process that brought it about? If you talk to any person who's been involved with JLF over the last three and a half, nearly four years, we could all tell a slightly different personal story of what led us to get involved in organizing this project. My personal story starts actually many years prior. Um, I've worked in the Jewish social justice world for uh, a number of years, for most of my career. And I saw up close and personal the influence that philanthropy had on Jewish social justice work. And in particular, the way in which philanthropic priorities could impact and divert movement priorities. You know, you need to put resources into the work that you can get funded, whether or not you think it's the most pressing work or the work that um, is going to have the greatest impact. And because Jewish, many Jewish foundations put limitations on the scope and tenor of uh, work that Jewish social justice groups can do around Israel-Palestine and even who they can partner with. For me, personally, I spent a number of years feeling like I was banging my head against the wall, really just asking the question, who's organizing Jewish money on the left? We can't win if we're not organizing people and money. And there are brilliant organizers organizing people. And I didn't see anyone organizing money. But a few of us who were asking similar questions found each other. The seed for JLF was planted in a living room in Brooklyn at the very beginning of the Trump presidency, which was wild. We'd set this meeting for the last weekend in January of 2017. And when we set the meeting, we had no idea you know, what was coming. But a group of six people, organizers, activists, and philanthropists got together and said, okay, what would it look like to do Jewish philanthropy differently? Over the following three years, that really grew into what has now become JLF. So it's been a collaborative process from the very beginning. And then in 2018, I was hired on a part-time contract basis to really get this off the ground, to launch this, this project. And that included recruiting a steering committee, which is how I pulled Nadav in. Um, I got a no first. I got a not right now and then <laughs> followed back up. Um, so we started, you know, taking the seed of an idea like, hey, what if we organized a, a fund, a new fund to, to resource and support the Jewish left? What could that look like if we offered a model for how Jewish philanthropy can be more aligned with the values of the, the left? And we both chose and were chosen by our fiscal sponsor. The process of finding a fiscal sponsor feels a little bit like dating. <laughs> Are you the right fit? <laughs> um, and we found a great fit with 
the Proteus Fund, which is our fiscal sponsor and a some describe it as the best kept secret in philanthropy. It's a pretty major mover in progressive philanthropy. Um, so we came on board with them at the end of February 2020 and launched publicly at the very end of November. As Joe shared, um, a couple of years ago, uh, she approached me about this seedling of an idea and I decided to hold off on it, but it, it's definitely stayed on my mind for, for the, the years in between. And then in 2020, uh, over the summer, as the uprisings, uh, the incredible Black-led uprisings were taking off, Joe approached me again um, and invited me to join the steering committee. Um, and it just felt like an opportunity I couldn't uh, turn down. A Jews, Jews of Color-led steering committee. Um, it just felt like a really incredible opportunity to take on the work of really transforming and challenging um, the way our community uh, thinks about moving money and resourcing our movements. Um, I come from a, a cross-class family and a multi-ethnic family. My my dad's family is Iraqi and Jewish and my mom's family is Ashkenazi and Jewish and grew up in the U.S. Yeah, just as I've grown into um, my organizing and into my my radical my commitment to radical uh, movement building, it's become more clear to me the ways in which my own class experience has really impacted um, what is possible for me and the leverage and power that I have in in Jewish communities and beyond. So as a person um, who identifies as professional or managerial class, it's really important for me to name and explicitize my own class experience and how it how it shapes um, my organizing. So I wanted to just start there. JLF, especially in parallel with my my work as a regional organizer with resource generation, it's been a really powerful experience to think about how do we um, challenge a system of of wealth accumulation um, in our community um, in a way that actually um, furthers the work of transforming the systems and furthers the work of uplifting Jewish people of color and no longer being so committed to the red lines that we've created around Israel-Palestine. So I think for me, it's been it's been really beautiful to see what is possible when um, folks who often have not had discretion over resourcing our movements, um, which I think is the case for many of the people on the steering committee, what is possible when we actually um, bring different people to the table and ask different questions and, and go deeper? So can you take us back to that meeting four years ago where people were sitting around in Brooklyn, I think you said, and talking about how Jewish philanthropy might be done differently? What were the things that were raised and discussed in that meeting? Or more importantly, what would you say now are the the areas where people are really raising a critique beyond the question of, obviously, one of the issues is that a philanthropist will, will often require certain points of view on Israel-Palestine issues uh, from organizations, even when they're not working on those issues. So obviously that's uh, one obstacle, one barrier. What are some of the other main issues that come up in that in that question? Really, it was a question of who is setting the priorities for the movement? And is that priority setting informed by the core needs of the people leading and doing the work on the ground. 
you know, in early 2017, we had just in the Jewish community had just gone through this incredibly painful public conversation about the movement for Black lives. What many of us on the Jewish left uh, saw was our legacy institutions saying, oh, no, we're too afraid to talk about Palestine. Therefore, we have to completely distance ourselves from the civil rights movement of our day, right, of our time. It was devastating, right, for so many Jews of color, particularly for so many Black Jews. We saw institutions saying one thing about their commitment to racial justice and then simultaneously turning around and saying, oh, no, but you can't work for racial justice with the Black-led movements and organizations working on the ground because we're not sure we 100% agree or trust them around Palestine and around Israel. That deeply troubled all of us, right? Felt like a real um, betrayal of our core values. And I will say that for me personally, as somebody who's both an organizer and an educator who has spent many years working between communities that don't talk a whole lot to themselves or to each other. One of the things I've found is that shutting down conversation doesn't actually lead to movement or growth or transformation, right? You can't have a meaningful conversation about anti-Semitism on the left if you refuse to allow organizations and movement leaders to talk to each other. So really the big questions that were raised were on the most fundamental level, like what role does money play in enabling our movements and our the organizations that make up our movements to do the powerful work that we say we want to see in the world to bring about transformative change? And if the current funding landscape isn't facilitating space for people to do the work that's so critically needed, how do we change that? Most of us who are in that living room in Brooklyn have direct experience working in nonprofits, right? And understand the degree to which the work of nonprofit organizations is often impacted and shaped by what we can get funding for and how imbalanced the power relationship is so much of the time between funders and uh, the people doing the work on the ground. I just want to follow up on some of these Israel-Palestine questions because we haven't talked about it that much yet in this unit on Jewish philanthropy. And I think it looms really large. And when I saw that y'all existed, I was so excited because in general, I have been pining for, you know, a project that specifically focuses on and is led by Jews of color. And because it said directly, you know, front and center, we exist to fund projects that are hard for, that, are, that it's hard for them to get funding from others. And I think you say directly Israel-Palestine being one of those issues, but there's others too. I mean... I I want to dive deeper into this because it's so widespread that we almost don't even talk about it. It's just like the water we're swimming in that not only organizations that do anti-occupation work or pro-Palestine solidarity work, like it's not even that those organizations struggle to get Jewish communal funding. It's that individual people that might be on staff or involved with organizations, sort of their associational connection to an organization can make it hard for that organization to get funding from people. It's like so deep and layered. And I, I'm getting animated about this because I have, I've lived it myself. I've been involved with anti-occupation work and I've, I, it, it's almost easier for me when, when the hardships of that are on me, but I've seen organizations that I love you know, be tied to, oh, Lex does 
does anti-occupation work and then they face challenges based on that even though they're not doing like they're they're doing entirely other things and so i'd i'd love to just really flesh out what our ecosystem is perpetuating around this issue being sort of a prerequisite or a litmus test for whether all sorts of projects of all sorts of varieties are are going to get the support they need or not i think you all have interviewed Professor Dove Waxman in the past, right? We have. I think his work paints a really critical piece of this picture. If you're interested, we definitely encourage you to check out our past interview with Dove Waxman. That's episode 118 of Judaism Unbound after you finish this episode. His research demonstrated what I think many of us who are in the position that you're describing, Lex, who have tried to navigate that line of being anti-occupation and living and working in the Jewish community have experienced up close and personal, which is that the American Jewish community's consensus on Israel has been splintering for decades. But we don't really talk about that. And we certainly don't talk about it in the you know upper echelons of the organized institutional Jewish world. Or if we do, it's quietly and with a sense of terror. 40 to 50%, depending on how you ask the question and what the question is of American Jews in 2013, right? So we're already talking about seven, eight years ago, data, were saying that actually Israel's not the most important issue to them and are far more comfortable criticizing the Israeli government and are no longer responding to Israel from this reflexive place of, of course, unquestioning support. And I think that that's been conflated with either not caring about Israel or it gets you labeled as a self-hating Jew. The Jewish left and the Jewish anti-occupation movement are filled with Jews who care deeply about their Judaism, about Jewish people, about the safety and well-being and humanity of Israelis. And we are so afraid of what happens if we loosen up a little bit and allow space to have really difficult conversations. The culture around talking about Israel-Palestine is so broken. And I know dozens of Jewish communal professionals who are terrified to even talk about Israel, lest they get fired. I don't think that's healthy, and I don't think it's Jewish. So a few years ago, I was honored by uh, the local federation for an award. And in sort of speaking about my work, um, I spoke about some solidarity organizing I had been doing with um, a local Muslim organization. And um, after the this went public, um, I was directly targeted by a, a right-wing Jewish group. Um, and it wasn't actually their, their targeting of me and asking of the Federation uh, to not honor the award they had give, given me um, wasn't actually about my own anti-occupation work or my Israel-Palestine politics. It was about the fact of being affiliated with a Muslim organization that is explicitly pushing against surveillance policies uh, locally and nationally, um, an organization that is working on police abolition. And even just the fact of me being in relationship with them was what, uh, what was focused on. And I think that tells a story about how traditional philanthropy is moving. The, the fact that this right-wing organization continues to be funded 
um, by many of the philanthropists that are also funding center-left or progressive um, organizing speaks to the harm that is not being addressed. And the people who are most suffering from this often in our own Jewish communities are Jewish people of color, right? So organizations are both saying that they want to prioritize racial justice and racial equity, and they're not willing to stand out and be real about the fact that there are still organizations in our networks, in our coalitions, on our JCRCs that are uh, willingly and uh, targeting uh, members of our own community because of their affiliation um, with frontline organizations. We need to be uh, really explicit about um, what we're doing with one hand and uh, who we're supporting on the other. I want to say what I think we're talking about and then make sure that I've got it right from your perspective, that there's two different things here that relate to this question of Israel-Palestine. One is that there are organizations that are actively working on Israel-Palestine issues, and they, for example, support BDS or don't, aren't against BDS or whatever it might be. And that's a group of you know Jewish organizations that work on Israel-Palestine issues in ways that certain funders don't like. Another category that we're talking about here is people or organizations that are not doing anything at all in the realm of Israel-Palestine as far as their mission goes. They're working for Black Lives Matter in America, or they're working for other social justice causes that have nothing at all to do with Israel. But there are either people that are involved with them, perhaps on the board or perhaps in other ways, that have publicly taken positions on BDS, for example, that are on the opposite side of the line that those funders are comfortable with, or they are in coalition with other organizations that aren't even Jewish organizations that they're in coalition with, perhaps not at all because they agree with anything that they're talking about Israel. It's just that in a coalition, you often have you often have to be or want to be in coalition with people who you don't agree about everything with. And you say, but we agree together that Black Lives Matter and we're going to work hard for that. And then when we go off and talk about Israel, we can have different opinions. And those funders say, no, 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 we don't accept that. You cannot be in coalition with anybody who has views on Israel that we don't like. And therefore, not only are we gonna, not going to fund you, but we're going to make, make things really difficult for you in other ways. We're going to put pressure on you to break those alliances, to fire those staff people. Right. So I just want to clarify that these are two related but, but very different issues that are in play here. That's right. So I, I guess it feels like there's, on the one hand, there might be certain families or family foundations or wealthy people and they are against all this stuff, and so they don't want to fund that, and they're going to put pressure on. That's category number one. Category number two is organizations like federations or perhaps other kinds of funders that are not necessarily uh, run by people that have right-wing views, but that are un that they themselves are able to be pressured by such people, such that they're saying, like, it's a pain to fund those lefty things. Let's not do it because it just makes our life difficult. Those feel to me like the two major category of, and most of the Jewish funding available money in the Jewish world today seems to be in one of those two categories. So, so it feels to me like you're creating a third category of a new kind of funding vehicle that would not be subject to those 
kinds of pressures. And I'm wondering how that looks. Like, is it that you're going out there and recruiting? And Nadav, maybe this has to do with resource generation and what that's all about. Is there like a group of wealthy Jews that are on the left, but for some reason they haven't, maybe they're not wealthy enough where they haven't created big foundations that are able to come in and say, okay, yeah, we got this big foundation that's funding causes on the right, but now we have a big foundation that's funding causes on the left. Or are we talking mostly about not so wealthy people and we're really talking more about a, you know, Bernie Sanders style campaign where everybody gives $42, but it adds up to a lot of money and and that's how we're going to create a new kind of funding vehicle. So I want to both agree with and challenge your basic premise, which is that I think that third category isn't just, oh, there aren't, there isn't that money on the left, but it's not organized. And that's actually where I see JLF coming in. And then an answer to your follow-up question of, are we going after, right, is this just big donors or is it more Bernie Sanders style? It's both. I'm not a demographer. I'm excited to talk to Lila Corwin Berman and finish reading her book, but all of the data out there suggests, right, and we know that there's going to be an enormous wealth transfer over the next two decades, the largest in American history. That is true the United States as a whole, and it's also true in the Jewish community. American Jewish philanthropy is estimated somewhere between 24 and $43 billion. There was uh, an article in eJewish Philanthropy estimating $600 billion of wealth transfer in the Jewish community. If we take that information, and we also know that American Jews tend to be politically progressive, right? And we know that there are major Jewish philanthropists who aren't necessarily funding Jewish work, but are giving throughout the progressive American landscape, the movement, well, I don't think it's actually a stretch to think that were there a vehicle for doing progressive values-aligned grant-making in the Jewish community, that would be really exciting. Our vision of a people's fund is really a fund that is funded by everybody on the left. So our donor base already includes people who are giving $10 a month and people who are giving hundreds of thousands of dollars. That's an enormous spread. And that is actually the spread of the movement. Yeah, I wanted to speak a little bit to to resource generation in particular, as I think a parallel sort of model or project. Um, So resource generation is a multiracial community of young people 18 to 35, uh, with access to wealth um, or class privilege, who are committed to the equitable distribution of wealth, land, and power. Just in 2020 alone, folks in our community have pledged $60 million uh, to movements. And the reason I bring this up is because resource generation is disproportionately Jewish. It's also disproportionately queer. um, But about 30% of our membership base are Jewish folks. There's absolutely an audience. And I think what's so different about the direction that um, philanthropy is going in and that young people with wealth are going in is that we we don't want to just sit in uh, big houses or sit in uh, ivory towers and make decisions um, about where we're funding. We actually want to be immersed in, in the movements and immersed in the organizations that are receiving the funds, which I think is a very different model, right? Like, It looks very different when you're a funder who can give large sums of money and you're also um, at weekly meetings, volunteering your time and energy 
to support, you know, transforming our housing affordability in the city, right? Like it's a very different orientation to the role of funders. And I think what's so powerful about JLF is that it it is allowing for that process to be even clearer and easier um, and more straightforward, right? So our steering committee and eventually the grant committee, it, it includes a lot of people who are already embedded and deep in movements and leading movements. I think the organizations we're funding is super important, but the approach itself, I think, speaks to the world we want to be living in, in which philanthropy is about resourcing our movements, and it's not about tax breaks. It's not about wealthy people feeling good about themselves. It's about us playing a role in movements. To me, that's a great segue into like, let's talk about some of the nitty gritty structural things of Jewish Liberation Fund, because the way that you have structured this project is really exciting. So you mentioned there are some people who have the ability and are giving, you know, $100,000 kinds of giving to JLF. And that's amazing. There are also people, cards on the table like me, who are giving, you know, I don't know, $25, whatever. Be a sustainer. There's an area on the website where you can support JLF. Highly encouraged. But my understanding of your organization, and this isn't necessarily intuitive to people, is it's not as if the people who give the biggest gifts are like the biggest stakeholders that have a bigger voice. And that, like, I think that needs to be said because we've almost taken for granted in other forms of giving that, of course, like whoever is like the biggest, I'm going to use the term like shareholder, stakeholder, which I I don't really believe, but I think that's how we conceptualize it. Like they get the biggest voice in who who receives the gifts at the end of the day. And sure, we all might be part of the process, but some voices are bigger than others. My understanding is not only do those voices not take up most of the space, but you have specifically created a process for the folks who are making grant decisions, not just are like part of the team, but like making decisions in the room. You've created a process for those to be nominated by the outside. And I mean, it's not that it's going to be like total strangers to you, but there's a real grassroots nature of this project whereby there's going to be a different way of allocating money, of of every step of the process. So I'd love to hear what the steps of that process are and sort of some of the subtle ways that you're upending some of the pieces of Jewish philanthropy that we've taken for granted in other settings. One piece of it that I wanted to highlight was the donor covenant um, that's accessible on the website, um, which I think speaks really powerfully. Um, Our donors are only one part of our community, right? And they're not the ones with the final say about where grants are made to. Um, And I think think an expectation, setting clear expectations with donors up front, that actually you're going to have to redistribute some of the power that you're used to holding um, in these types of funding decisions in order to be in alignment with how we're moving. And I can imagine that in the future, there might be donors who are not ready to take that step. So what does it look like actually to model yeah, model democracy in our organization and in this project in a way that really challenges and agitates people. Um, because I think that's where that's where change is possible. And that's where it reverberates into other projects, into other philanthropies, into other funds. Just to answer your question directly, Lex, of what does our process look like? Um, our very first round of grant making was invitation only. And that was not an easy decision to make. Invitation-only grant making is one of the ways that philanthropy stays distant and inaccessible, 
right? You're If you're a brand new grassroots project and you don't have relationships with wealthy people and you don't have relationships with foundation professionals, how do you even get in the door? And we also want to ensure that we're not asking grantees to put an enormous amount of time and energy into submitting applications that have either a low likelihood of getting funding or for paltry sums of money, right? The number of grants out there for $1,000 that, you know, you have to spend 15 hours working on the application. That's absurd. It's insulting. So part of what we were balancing was wanting to make sure that there was a high alignment of likelihood to getting funding and, you know, the available resources. The steering committee collaborated in creating a pretty robust list of projects and organizations pretty squarely focused on addressing racial justice. So that even in and of itself, we know is just a slice of the progressive Jewish movement. But that was the slice we started with. From that list, right, then we narrowed down to, okay, which are the organizations that are going to have the most difficult time getting funding from other uh, institutional funders for any number of reasons related to the dynamics we've talked about around Israel-Palestine or otherwise. Um, We know, for example, that Black-led organizations in the United States receive significantly less funding, and organizations more broadly led by people of color receive significantly less funding than white-led organizations. So our first round of grants went to 100% of the organizations we and projects we funded are led by uh, either individuals or teams that include people of color in senior leadership roles, and again, are directly focused on Jews of color. You know, that's how we sort of started to to pull out a slice because we also knew that as much as we want to live into the world in which we don't operate from a place of scarcity, we had a budget. So we have to slice it somehow. But in moving forward and once we launched publicly, right, it was really important that we have some means for people to let us know about projects and organizations that aren't on our radar already. We don't know everything that's out there. So yes, organizations can be nominated. And while we are still um, working out the details of what our next round of grant making is going to look like, it will likely be some level of an initial open call with clear parameters so that people and organizations can decide for themselves if it seems like it's worth you know, their time to submit an initial letter of interest. And we want to continue moving towards an increasingly transparent and open process. I'm curious a little bit about the pressure of the larger donors, as we were talking about. It's speculative, I know, but I'm just sort of even thinking about myself. You know, well, let's say that I'm really into this, which I am, and uh, I'm about to do our end of year giving, so I'm going to send you a gift. But what happens when I sit down with my wife next year, and we're looking at the various things that we give, and we say, well, I don't really know what what they what they funded last year. I mean, it was a bunch of you know. I'm not so through. So we're just not going to give it again next year, you know. And and that's no big deal because that's a few hundred dollars, you know. But like I'm thinking about somebody who's giving, you know, hundreds of thousands of dollars, and it's just kind of natural to say that it's not a tax where you know I have to give that every year or else I'm going to go to prison, you know. So so there's some way in which you know, and it's a bummer for you if somebody was giving a few hundred thousand dollars one year and then the next year they're not. So it almost feels like without even trying, the larger your gift, the more you kind of have power in the relationship where you're trying to sort of uh, assemble 
money and ultimately use it for a good cause. But, you know, whereas if the person just was giving $10 and then they're not going to give $10 again the next year, you know, realistically, it, it doesn't really affect your, your work. I, I don't mean that as a criticism or as a skepticism. I just, I'm just curious about, well, how do you manage that? How do you make an expectation with people that, please, you know, you're not going to do that? Because I think even if a person says, well, I'm not going to do that in a mean way, but it's just sort of natural that it would happen just because they might have different priorities the next year. And, and how do you kind of manage that dynamic? That's a great question. And probably if you asked us that question in five years, maybe we'd have a slightly different answer, right? We'll see. And there's two things, right? One, I think is just about establishing authentic relationships with donors of any size that aren't transactional. No donor is just their credit card or their check. And then I think the second is just being transparent that part of giving to a re-granting foundation like JLF or like, you know, our sibling foundations, which I hope they're okay with being claimed as siblings, for example, Third Wave Fund or the Groundswell Fund. There are a number of examples in the secular world of regranting foundations, practicing participatory philanthropy. Part of the package is that by giving to this fund, you are trusting the movement leadership to allocate those resources. And yeah, sometimes it might mean that their judgment is different than yours. And that might not be the right fit for every donor. Jewish Liberation Fund is doing something different. We're trying to build collective power for the values we share. And we're also trying to move decision-making power. That gets at the, the heart of a lot that is both broken and I think places where there's real opportunity for healing around class divisions in this country. I'm thinking about the federation world. As I understand kind of the Jewish federations, it's kind of this idea, it's like, it's almost like a government in exile type of thing. It's like, it's a tax, right? Meaning, and, and they can't collect the tax by sending you to jail. So there's a lot of social pressure on people to pay their Jewish tax. I'm not saying so much anymore, but certainly this is how it was when they were started. I, it still is for many people. But they're kind of using social pressure as a way of having this organization that fundamentally works like a government and that it collects taxes from people based roughly according to their ability to pay. And then it's like, okay, and now it's up to the government to decide how it all goes out. This is in a certain way connected to that because unlike a family foundation, it's trying to collect money from a lot of different people, which I think is the way that federations are better than foundations, right? Because they because they are more democratic, even though they have big problems because the wealthier people, the people that give more, have more power. The advantage, I think, of a foundation is that it doesn't have to be accountable to some notion that might not be from the givers themselves about what's, you know, good for the Jewish world, right? I mean, there can be foundations that do things that are that are riskier or that are based on a certain political view, which you may or may not like, but they're at least not prisoners of some notion of the community's needs or something like that, which can be misused. Here, it feels like, and this is why I'm so intrigued by JLF, but I'm also intrigued by what could be other new kinds of funds that might be set up in addition to JLF. Like, I mean, something to think about our own. Like, if we want to we want to really fund the more radical and speculative Jewish organizations, they also have a hard time getting funding from the old system. Maybe we should create a 
Jewish Radical Innovation Fund and things like that. And like, what would the Jewish world look like if it were full of all these new kinds of funds? And the one piece that I'm trying to sort of wrap my mind around is, do we need a new language? Do we need a new way to talk about Jewish values that kind of... I, I think about uh, I think about the work that's done by George Lakoff, who's a linguist, and he's written Don't Think of an Elephant and other books about political fundraising and political talk, where he basically says one of the reasons why Republicans are more successful than Democrats at raising money is because they've successfully found a language and a set of metaphors that come from a certain view of the family, of a dominant father, and it's all about control and fear, and that's a very successful motivator, and it's really worked. And I wonder if we are already, if you are already, and if we need to develop uh, a new way of talking to Jews that basically says, this is a really good way to be Jewish. You know, this is a really, it's a, it's a good way to be Jewish. In fact, maybe it's even an ethical way to be Jewish because the money is not really fully yours. And right, so that's where like tithing comes from. And there's some idea that you should give up some of this money because it's not yours. And because you're giving it up because it's not yours, you therefore shouldn't have any control really about where it goes because it actually was never yours to begin with. And then who should have the control becomes another question. But if you can say, well, and we're setting these funds up ethically and and with strong values that are Jewish values and that you share because we've had this covenant, then maybe we are the reasonable, somebody has to control where the money goes. So there is some value to dividing the giving and the control of where it goes, right? I mean, there's all sorts of elements here that I'm finding very intriguing. And I'm wondering if there's already best practices, maybe from resource generation, or maybe that you've already developed as to how to talk about this with essentially wealthy people, but also not so wealthy. In resource generation's work over the years, uh, we've done a lot to get really clear on like what are best donor practices and what are really bad donor practices. You know, there's like the logistical, like um, making multi-year commitments, like asking the organization up front whether they want the money now or split over several years. Like there's, there's sort of the process pieces. And then there's also the deep unlearning that needs to happen, particularly for wealthy people about control. And I think historically and in this moment, we're at a place where there's such unequal power distribution um, that we have to think radically different. Like the the way that our foundations work and the way we talk about them now is not working. You know, more money is being given away than ever. And we still have a massive racial wealth gap. Um, we still have uh, banks and foundations that are too big to fail and too big to be held accountable. So the question for me is like, what does it look like to redistribute power in a way that is uh, reparative? Um, in, a, in a way that is about chuva also, like um, in the places where we personally or communities we've are been a part of have done harm, what does it look like to return resource and return the decision making? So for example, if there are Jewish federations who've enabled the targeting of black or Muslim or other POC activists, what does it look like to relate to giving around that in a reparative way? We're not asking those questions in a in a broad way. So the models that we're developing are the models that are based on a status quo um, that upholds the same power. Specifically, like I want to live in a world where there are more, at least at least in the shorter term, I want to live in a world where there are more versions of JLF that are really prioritizing process as the key ingredient in how we uh, change dynamics. 
I think I eventually want to live in a world without philanthropy, but for the time being, let's live in a world where at least the power um, has shifted. I think it does. I think maybe we don't say this explicitly enough. It does require some people giving up some power and feeling pretty uncomfortable. People coming to the terms with the fact that like organizations are going to make decisions I disagree with. And if I'm in deep relationship with them, I get to bring those things up and they get to receive them, but I'm not going to dictate how they're moving. Something that's happened in the in the ways that you're questioning philanthropic systems, I mean, it points to a broader set of questions around what an individual is and what a collective is and and how we talk about those things that is super important. When Dan says, the money is not mine, it's not so much that I and you, Joanna, and you, Nadav, and you, Dan, like have our stuff and we take a fraction of our stuff and allocate it to others and we're being generous. It's that it it wasn't ours. And it's literally the case that agriculturally, the, the places in the Torah where this is anchored on, like the idea is that this is literally not ours. And so when when it's allocated to the priesthood or to whoever sort of gets these various tithes, like it was theirs the whole time. You're just sort of figuring out how to separate it and give it to them. That points to something in philanthropy that's really hard because, you know, we we live in a system where like the expectation is every gift you get your name in the in the pamphlet at the end of the year and the the bigger gifts get honored at the galas. And there's very much a, a there's like an there's an idea that it is the individual that is giving of themselves what, whatever amount of money we have or don't have. Like, how can we be thinking about what money is for us in a way that is more healthy. How can we zoom out and take these questions about the structure of of Jewish Liberation Fund and apply them to like how we're thinking about who we are as individuals and communities? What you were saying, Lex and Dan, around the money not being ours um, feels really tied to like a, a huge paradigm shift that I think I've gone through that many people I'm in relationship have gone through of moving from thinking of giving as like charity of like, oh, the world, like some people don't have enough. So maybe we should give them a little bit more. So they have a little bit more and we can feel good from moving from that framework to like redistribution, which is like the system we live in. Racial capitalism is fundamentally unjust. As a light-skinned Mizrahi person from a cross-class family, I have benefited from anti-blackness in the U.S. And part of the money that I have access to is directly tied to racial segregation. In every person's story, there is somewhere where you have either benefited or been targeted by the systems that we live in. Understanding that, I think understanding the redistribution framework is part of moving from a very individualized conception of giving of how we are in community to one that is collective, right? Because until there is equitable distribution of uh, wealth, land, and power, as an example, none of what we earn, or I believe that none of what we earn is really that legitimate um, because we're, we're living in a system that is explicitly leaving people out. With the caveat, obviously, that this doesn't mean that our families work and our families labor over many generations to get where we are today it doesn't matter. It does matter. It's important. 
I think there's a way to build a culture of gratitude and appreciation that is about our collective movement and less about us as individuals. I just wanted to ask you, Nadav, from your work with Resource Generation, whether you think that some of that change of thinking is easier or is just happening among people who have inherited that wealth, maybe already into the third generation. Because it feels to me that if you inherited a lot of wealth, it's very hard to say. And Danielle Dershlag said this, I think, a few weeks ago. I didn't earn it. You know, it, there's no there's no story in which I earned this, even if that story itself is false or, like you say, is from a world in which you're benefiting from the from your your white skin or whatever it might be that that allowed you to make that money in the first place, not just your genius. You know, there's this myth of genius and people tend to reduce the idea of luck. But with the person who actually made all the money, you can imagine that in their own psychology, it's like, well, I earned it. it's mine because I earned it. Whereas those who inherited it, it's it's pretty clear that it, it isn't. So I'm wondering whether I mean, it's pretty clear that yeah. that it's pretty clear that there's no argument that they deserved it. So the question is whether that story is is easier and easier for people to wrap their minds around as they, they move from mm-hmm. the generation that earned the money originally to, to further and further away from that. Yeah, I would say yes, that for inheritors coming to terms with this paradigm shift, I think is a lot more straightforward than for people who, for example, like our members members of color who are the first generation maybe in the US or the first generation to earn really high income, I think it can be a lot more complex to to get to the place of like, this isn't mine, I should redistribute it. Where there might be intervention is the way in which you are earning the money, like who's be- who who is being impacted by the way in which you are earning money, right? Like if you're a doctor thinking about the clerical workers in your building who are barely earning living wage, right? How does the work that they do enable you to accumulate wealth in a way that uh, creates inequality? Um, Or if you work in an industry like banking, right? Understanding how the banking sector is built upon long histories of racism or understanding how even now it continues to perpetuate the systemic issues that we're dealing with. I do feel like there there's more more depth or more um creativity that we need to be engaging with around how do we push people who are in the generation that's earned the money um to to relate to it differently and relate to it in a way that can benefit us collectively. For me it comes down to having empathy and deep compassion for everything that that money and wealth can symbolize for us on a gut emotional level. My spouse and I come from different class backgrounds. I grew up comfortably like middle, upper managerial class. Um, I thought we were less well-off than we were because I grew up adjacent to a lot of wealth. And my spouse grew up in a divorced family with significant class differences between her parents, but living with a, you know, a fair amount of financial insecurity. And our emotional patterns are really different around wealth, right? And like it feels like a really different thing to decide to give away money when you've always had a safety net versus deciding to give away money when you have only ever been your own safety net. I don't actually think we can dismiss that in the conversation, particularly around what it means to 
think of whatever wealth we have as not ours, whatever money we have as not ours, particularly if we're like the first generation in our family to have financial stability, right? Or we're looking around and saying like, everybody else I see around me, like their parents paid for college and their parents gave them money for the down payment on their house. And I want to pass that on to my kids and give them you know, that leg up that they didn't have. And particularly right for people of color in this country where it's not just an income gap, but a wealth gap that's largely been perpetuated by often less visible means of transferring wealth, like investing in real estate, right? And so it has to be a conversation that takes seriously those differences in our really tangible lived experience needs and the emotional impact of that decision because it can carry so much with it, right? It carries our collective ancestral trauma with it, right? Make sure you've got enough cash to flee when the Nazis show up. That's really hard to let go of and to move through. And I don't think we want to dismiss that, but I think we can hold it with tenderness and compassion and say, great, we see that, we feel it. And what does it look like to imagine a different kind of future where nobody has to fear that they won't have a safety net where we actually all are holding each other up? Last question before we go, how can people who want to learn about Jewish Liberation Fund or contribute to Jewish Liberation Fund do so? They can find us at our website, jewishliberation.fund. Jewishliberationfund.org will also get you there, but .fund is our, is our home. Uh, we are on Twitter at JL underscore fund, and we are on Facebook at Jewish Liberation Fund. And if you're if you're a young person uh, with wealth and or class privilege who are looking who's looking to be in community with others, uh, I'd invite you also to check out Resource Generation. Just go to resourcegeneration.org or look up the New York Times article, uh, "The Rich Millennials Who Want to Challenge Capitalism," and you should find us. That headline is the closer to this episode. Amazing! Thank you both so much for joining us. This has been a fantastic conversation. Thank you. Thanks for having us. It's really been a pleasure. Thank you so much. Appreciate you all. And thank you so much, of course, to all of you out there for listening. We hope that you've enjoyed this episode. We hope you'll check out jewishliberation.fund. I mean, not only because .fund is a very cool suffix to any URL, but also because it's a great project. Um, so we're going to close out this conversation in the same way that we always do, by encouraging you to be in touch with us. And there are a wide variety of ways for you to do that. First, you can head to our Facebook page, Judaism Unbound. You can also check out our Twitter and Instagram handles, also just at Judaism Unbound. You can go to our website, judaismunbound.com. And last but not least, you can always email us at dan at judaismunbound.com or lex at judaismunbound.com. If you are interested in particular in some form of Judaism Unbound giving circle that would channel some of these ideas we talked about today of collective giving, please, please do send us an email. We've already gotten some notes and we're looking forward to more and maybe putting something together. So the last note we would make is that on that philanthropic front, you can always support us and you can do so at judaismunbound.com donate with either a monthly recurring gift or just a one-time donation. So thank you so much for listening. And with that, this has been Judaism Unbound. <laughs>